the book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now, the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who again eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. 
Now, what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent and he can't. He actually can't go in and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this gathering of your people. And Lord, as we... Um, Reflect on your word this morning. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, some of you might remember back in 2003 uh, on the, in Alabama at one of the state buildings there, there was uh, this monument of the Ten Commandments. And it was kind of this, should it stay or should it go? It was this highly symbolic standoff, if you will. And um, a judge decided uh, that there was a problem between separation of church and state. And this was in front of a state building. And so this judge made a decision to remove the Ten Commandments uh, from out in front of this Alabama uh, state building. And there were lots of opinions, lots of noise on all sides, of course, uh, because of the symbolism. And, and you couldn't miss the symbolism, if you remember. Uh, and the symbolism was simply this, um, that uh, for those who wanted the, the, the monument to stay, it was, hey, we believe in God's laws. We believe in God's rules. We believe in God's uh, order for uh, our people. Uh, and those on the other side, uh, the symbolism was this. 
We don't need God to tell us what to do. We can kind of figure this out ourselves. We don't need a self-imposed God uh, over our people making decisions for us. And so it went back and forth uh, in terms of uh, how it all played out. But we've been around the block. Uh, That was 2003. And of course, our nation has continued increasingly to more and more uh, say, hey, God, we don't need you. We don't need your rules. We don't need your guidance. We've got this. Uh, We know what's best for us. And so as we think about setting up the Ten Commandments this morning, it's really this battle between God's ideas uh, versus our ideas. And when we think about the Ten Commandments and God's law, if you will, it's uh, this idea of God's objective truth with a capital T versus uh, man, humankind's opinions about what is the best way for us Uh, as uh, a people, as a community, even as a nation, uh, how are we going to live together in community with one another? Well, the result uh, has continued to become more and more this idea of uh, an unraveling of order. Uh, And I think we all feel it today. Uh, At least that's what I hear from people, from you, Um, from professionals who are kind of paying attention to cultural trends, this idea that we as a nation, and frankly even the world, are moving from a state of order to more and more chaos going on all around us. To quote from the book of Judges, and we're going to get there in a couple weeks, everyone does what is right in their own eyes, right? It's just like we don't need God telling us what to do. I'm going to decide in the moment what's right for me um, to make my own decisions. So last Sunday, uh, Jim shared with us about uh, Moses and this whole idea of setting the Israelites free from captivity and this idea of idols and the ways in which idols trip up the people and the ways in which idols continue to trip us up. And so God rescues his people from slavery into freedom. He brings them out Uh, into the desert. And the desert is this place where there's lots and lots of chaos, of course. Uh, There's uh, not much order in the desert, in the wilderness. It's a place of uh, desolation. It's a place of desperation. It's a place of chaos. And we have to be reminded that we are living in a day and time as a nation, as a people, as Americans, where we're we're moving from order to chaos. The context for Moses and the people of God is that they are moving from chaos and God is inviting them into order. And that in a nutshell is really what the law of God is all about. It's this invitation in in the midst of lots of chaos to step into order. And so for these five chapters in the book of Exodus... Um, uh, 19 through 23, uh, we're just going to focus in on just a couple verses, frankly, six verses. And when we think about the law of God, we, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and what, as, as we're reading, there's, that's just the beginning, right? And God expounds on them, explains them, and they continue to kind of be layered out there more and more and more to the point where there's 613 different commandments, mitzvah, 
that God has laid out and invited the people to step into from order, uh, from chaos into order. And so we're going to start with uh, verse 19, even before God lays out uh, these 10 commandments that we learned about in Sunday school and confirmation and all that good stuff. So let's begin with Exodus 19, uh, verse 1. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, scholars don't know exactly where uh, Mount Sinai is today, uh, but most uh, think that it's around the area that's known as uh, what they call today as uh, Jabal uh, Mausa. And it's a mountain about 7,500 feet up in the air. Uh, it's in the southern Arabian Peninsula. And you look at the map in terms of the route that the Israelites took uh, from slavery in Egypt towards the promised land. It's like, whoa, they went the wrong way. What's up with that? That's another sermon for another day. But this is where they're at. They're in this mountainous region. And in about 10, 11 months, uh, Lord willing, uh, there's going to be a group of us uh, from Faith Lutheran who are going to uh, be at St. Catherine's Monastery out in the wilderness, about 5,000 feet in elevation. We're going to wake up at 2 in the morning, and at 3 in the morning, we are going to start trekking up on switchbacks back and forth, about 25 feet, uh, uh, and we're going to arrive right at the top of Mount Mausa. And as we wait there, and it's going to be pitch black, completely dark, we're just going to watch and wait as the sun comes up and the sun rises over Mount Sinai. And if you've ever been at a place where the sun is coming up, it just takes your breath away, doesn't it? I remember a couple of years ago, well, it was probably more than a couple of years ago, Logan and I hiked the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever stood at a place where there's just an incredible... Uh, formation of God's creation and you're watching the sun come up it's just like oh. this is where Moses is getting ready to climb up the mountain to experience uh, God's um, faithfulness uh, to them it's this idea that God has, it's, we are told that it's exactly two months after they left Egypt as Jeff talked about they've just been rescued now they're out in this place. They've got freedom for the very first time in their lives. And they're going to learn to depend on God because for the next 40 years, it's just them in the wilderness. So verse 3, Then Moses climbed, up, uh, climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So in just these two verses uh, of Scripture, we learn uh, several things, I think, that God is trying certainly to teach the Israelites, but I think he's also trying and inviting us uh, to learn as well. And the first one is, remember who you used to be. We sang about that this morning. Remember who you used to be. You were the fam you're from the family of Jacob. Jacob was, uh, you know, he was the heel grabber. He was the conniver. And he was, just, he was just a single guy. 
And God took him, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and God wrestled with him and turned him, transformed him. He wrestled with God and won. Uh, so God changed his name to Israel. So what we learn in this, uh, as God is talking to Moses, is you are, you're from the family of Jacob, but I have now made you the descendants of Israel. Once you were just a part of a small clan, now you are a mighty nation of Israel. Once you were part of a, a, a small group that was connivers and, and self-centered and self-focused, trying to be all about yourself, now I've made you into someone who has wrestled with God, who walks humbly, who walks boldly and courageously with God. Remember, remember what I have done for you. Remember who you were. I think it's good for us to always remember who we were and how God has brought us uh, to where we are today. How God has taken us from our lives of, of brokenness and redeemed us, rescued us, and made us into who we are today. I think oftentimes as we look forward, we, we're always thinking about, oh, I still got a long way to go in my spiritual journey. Anyone else ever think that or just me? Yeah, and we do, Right? That's why it's important for us to look back and to remember where God has brought us. I'm not where, you know, I want to be, but God has brought me so far. The second thing I think that God is uh, teaching us, uh, and certainly the Israelites, is remember how I rescued you. You have seen what I did to the, uh, to the Egyptians. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember the Egyptians? Remember what I did to them? Which is God's way of saying, hey, remember I rescued you? Remember what I did? You were once enslaved, and now you're free. You're free here in the wilderness. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this in your margins. Rescue always comes before the rules. Rescue always comes before the rules. And the reason why I want to just, I, I think it's so important to just kind of camp out on this idea of rescue always comes before the rules because I think so often, and I hear this, we get it wrong. We think that the rules, when we follow the rules, that helps to lead us into rescue. God looks at us following the rules, his rules, let's just say the Ten Commandments, the law, the Torah, and we think, oh man, God must be looking down on me. Thinking, ah, oh, I really did something good this week. God's impressed with me. You know, as I, th I think about uh, many of you who are um, faithful followers of Jesus Christ and you follow the rules, you might be tempted to think, well, I paid my taxes this year, right? God must look and be down and looking at me going, wow, that's great. Some of you came early and helped set up, Tom and Barb and, and many of you others who, who set up this morning, you might be thinking, tempted to think, wow, God must think I'm awesome because I helped to set up this morning. Some of you might be, uh, you know, really thinking about all the ways in which you, you lead a faithful life. You might even be tempted to think, well, I've been reading my Bible reading, God must be going, man, that's awesome. I am really impressed with you for reading your Bibles. But I, again, I would just, I, that, that's just not how it works. It's not how it works at all in Scripture. 
It's not about following the rules so that we experience God's rescue. First it's the rescue, and then God gives us the rules. Remember how I rescued you. The Ten Commandments have not been given yet. And then number three, remember how I cared for you. Remember how I cared for you. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God is using this imagery, this metaphor of on eagle's wings to really explain, to communicate to God's people, the Israelites, this, this idea of care, this idea of love. And if we lived or visited in uh, the Sinai Peninsula, we would see uh, maybe uh, an eagle's nest, and we would look up high, and we would be reminded of how the eagle lives out in the wilderness. And there's a couple things you need to know about eagles that live there. Uh, the Hebrew word for eagle is nesh er, and it's, it's a particular eagle that lives uh, in the Sinai Peninsula. And it's really this imagery that we're going to see over and over and over as you're reading through your Bibles of God's relationship with his people. And the first thing uh, I want you to know about the, the, those particular eagles that live in the Sinai uh, desert there is that uh, they, have, they live in a nest, and it's an inaccessible nest. It's high up on a cliff. It's uh, desolate, and, and no one can get there. Except that's, that's exactly where the eagle builds their nest. Which means the baby eaglets are completely dependent on their mama for food. They're dependent on their mama for everything. So the mama lays eggs, eaglets come out, and they just have to sit in the nest and they're way up on a ledge and they can't do anything. They are 100% dependent on mama eagle. And in the same way as God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, it's this reminder that God is, is the mama eagle and asking us as the eaglets to be completely dependent on mama for all the provisions at every level. Second thing about the eagles that live there is that they are very, very protective Mama Eagle has this really powerful beak. She's got strong legs, and she's got these talons that will just rip you apart. They are razor sharp. And if you ever run into one of these eagles and you mess with the eggs uh, or with an eaglet, let's just say you better be born again. Because at that moment in time, you will be meeting your maker. I mean, these Mama Eagles will tear you apart. They are very protective and so God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness where they are completely dependent on God. But God says, it's okay. I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will take care of you. I will be your protector. And the third thing uh, about these eagles that I just want to share this morning is that the baby eaglets, they mature very slowly. They, you know, like a lot of birds, they don't leave the nest very soon after they're born. In fact, these particular eaglets, uh, they live in their nest for about three years. They can't go anywhere. And, and Mama Eagle just has to take care of them, bringing them whatever provisions they need for three years. And at some point in time, when it's approaching about three years-ish, Mama decides it's time for baby to leave the nest. And what does she do? 
she kicks the baby eaglet out of the nest. And the eaglet, what does it do? It just, it goes down, right? It's gravity, right? It's just the law of gravity. It spirals down toward the earth and it's just going, oh, I'm getting ready to splat on the ground. And Mama Eagle is watching baby eaglet and as she's going down and the baby eaglet is not flapping her wings, she races down and she captures that eaglet and she brings it back up and she carries that eaglet on her wings. She sets it back in the nest and waits for a few days. And then after a few days, she kicks baby eaglet out fly baby eaglet fly and maybe the, the eaglet doesn't flap its wings mama eagle eagle does the same thing and she just keeps doing this over and over and over until that eaglet's like oh that's what these things are for right so the whole idea of what mama eagle is trying to do with the eaglets is teach them to mature to grow up to flap their wings to grow up the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about this is what is our role in the church is to not just be children, not just be infants tossed to and fro, but we are to grow up in Christ to become mature, to flap our wings, if you will. And this is what's going on with this imagery that God is telling Moses to tell the people and so this, if I were to kind of summarize, you know, what is going on here, even before God gives the law of Moses, uh, the law to Moses to give to the people, the most important thing, if you heard nothing else this morning, if you've been dozing off or daydreaming or planning your lunch or, or, or whatever you've been doing, here's where I want you to pay attention. The most important thing you need to know about God's law is that it's rooted and grounded in love. This is why, before God tells Moses the what, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, God says to Moses, let me tell you why I'm giving you these commandments, these instructions. And he doesn't want to hold back to Moses. And he just says, let me tell you why? Because I want to move you from chaos to order. I'm doing that. I'm giving you these Ten Commandments because I love you. I'm not giving you the Ten Commandments, the thou shalt nots to ruin your fun. I'm not giving you the thou shalt nots to uh, make your life boring. I'm not giving the, you the thou shalt nots to uh, hold you back from all the things that you want to experience. I'm doing it for you so that you can experience an abundant life, a fruitful life, so that you can experience a joyful life. And it's all about relationships, relationship with God and relationship with one another. This is why God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, verse 5, now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. God talks about this idea of covenant, and, and again, if you've been reading along in your Bibles, you've heard this word covenant over and over and over. 
And sometimes we're a little fuzzy. Well, what does covenant mean? That sounds like kind of a, a churchy word. A covenant, uh, just simply by definition, is an agreement that governs a relationship. An agreement that governs a relationship. And a covenant relationship, it can be between uh, two cities, uh, two nations, two peoples. It's the parameters, it's the guidelines, if you will, that's going to say this is how the relationship is going to work so that the relationship is healthy, so that the relationship is flourishing, so that we're clear on how this is going to work. So a covenant is an agreement that governs a relationship. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that kind of sounds like a contract, right? I mean, isn't that what a contract does? Yes and no. A covenant is actually very similar to a, con a, a, con a contract. But there's some key differences, and I just kind of want to lay one out. Uh, a contract, when I, to give you an example, uh, the, probably the most obvious uh, uh, illustration of a contract is uh, when you buy a house, right? You go into a room... There's just a handful of people sitting around a table. You've got papers. Everybody's signing the papers, and, uh, and, and you know, you're making things clear, right? Making the boundaries clear in terms of how this is going to work. And then everybody leaves the room, and it's it, and you go home, and you enjoy your new house. That's kind of a contract, right? A covenant is much more public. It's much more communal. You didn't invite, uh, you know, all of your family and friends to come to sign the contract uh, for your house, right? It's just among a group of people. It's not a public affair. A covenant is a public affair. And perhaps one of the most uh, obvious examples of a covenant relationship is a wedding, it's where people gather together. They invite their family and friends uh, to come and to experience and to join in and to agree to the terms of this relationship. Um, sometime in the next few months, Logan and Caitlin are going to stand before their family and friends and they're going to offer marriage vows to one another. And it's going to be a great day. And one of the things I love about a covenant marriage is this idea that there is accountability. When we show up to a, a marriage union and the wedding vows are spoken in front of family and friends and in, in front of the public, in front of the community, every, everyone gets an opportunity to say, I support this. And if you don't support it, I don't know, God help you, I suppose. <laughs> it can get awkward and weird, right? Actually, that was the pastor, the pastor of my uh, and Cindy's uh, wedding. He, he stood up there and said, hey, does anybody uh, have anything against this, this marriage? And then he was silent. And he said, anyone? Anyone? He was kidding. He actually wanted uh, my wife to marry one of his own sons. Uh, and so that was kind of the running joke. But it's this opportunity for us to stand as a community and support and encourage one another. Did you guys know that Logan and Caitlin got engaged last weekend? It's pretty exciting. Looking forward to that. The other thing I want to lift up uh, about covenant is uh, there is the unconditional covenant and the conditional covenant. And we've been reading, we read through the story of Abraham and what you need to know about the story of Abraham is that was a 
an unconditional covenant. God offered three things. Uh, I'm going to make you a, a nation. Uh, I'm going to give you land. And I'm going to use you as a people uh, to bless the nations. It was unconditional. God just said, this is what I'm going to do. Like it or not, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. Whether you play along with this or not. Now it says that Abraham believed and trusted in God. But God just said, this, this is what I'm doing. Um, and then there's the uh, conditional uh, covenant. And this is what the Mosaic covenant is. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, if you will. There's lots of if-then clauses. If you do this, then this will happen. And so we're going to see this throughout Scripture over and over and over. But I just want to remind you, there are definitely two different kinds of covenants uh, in God's Word. Um, conditional, unconditional. And then uh, the last thing I want to kind of lift up here is uh, God's covenants. There's the Abrahamic covenant, which we've been uh, read, read about, and it's good. we're going to keep coming back to it. Then there's the Mosaic covenant, uh, which we're going to get at here. And then there's the Messianic covenant, and that's the covenant with Jesus, of course. So there are three different uh, covenants that we read about in Scripture that just keep coming back over and over and over. Now, one other thing I want to lift up about covenants is uh, there are, the terms oftentimes get uh, interchanged uh, at some level uh, in terms of what they mean. So God's covenant relationship, sometimes Scripture talks about the law, sometimes the commandments, the mitzvah, uh, the teachings, the instructions, even the testament. Uh, we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is an idea here that these are the teachings, the law, or even the Torah is another term. And so all these terms get used uh, fairly uh, interchangeably. But what you need to know is more or less they all kind of mean the same. It's all about defining the relationship between God and God's people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And again, I just want to highlight the important part of a covenant. That, that we just, whether it's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the covenant of the Messiah of Jesus, it is rooted in love. This is why God created these covenants. Out of an overflow of God's love, God came to Abraham and said, Ah, oh, I love you. Even though you have done nothing to deserve this, I just, I want to establish a relationship with you. Same thing with Moses. God came to Moses and said, I am going to care for you like on eagle's wings. This is why I'm establishing this covenant relationship with you. And then we read, of course, in, in the New Testament, the most famous Bible verse in the New Testament, John 3.16, God came into the world out of his great love. That's why he sent Jesus into the world, of course. And so over and over and over, this idea, you cannot separate God's covenant uh, from love and what God is up to. And, and I know, I know, I understand this. We often think, well, then why are these thou shalt nots? Right? When, if I were just to walk up to you on a, any day of the week and say the Ten Commandments, and you start thinking about it, you're, you're probably your immediate reaction is going to be negative because it's all about what we can't do, what we should not do. But what we've got to remember is God gave us these rules, these guidelines, the Torah, these instructions, because he loves us.
And then, uh, let's see. Got ahead of myself. I guess I did have one more thing that I read just a few moments ago. The blessing comes through obedience. The blessing of God through the covenant comes through obedience. And that's really what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant. It's this idea of if-then. So even though God gives these, these Ten Commandments, they're really nothing unless we lean into them and obey them. And we read throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament when people were obedient, when they actually followed them, when they actually lived into and leaned into them, things went really well for God's people, the Israelites. But when they were disobedient, when they said, no, God, we're not following your laws, we're not following your rules, uh, things fell apart and there were always consequences. And the, the reason why obedience was so important was so that the relationships could be healthy and thriving. When they leaned into the, the Ten Commandments, their relationship with God was good. Their relationship with others was flourishing, healthy, and strong. Even in the New Testament, Jesus talks about this importance of obedience. He says the very last words as he's leaving the earth, he looks at his disciples and says, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey the commandments or commands I have given to you. Jesus says, hey, I've given you some stuff to think about. And unless you obey, it's all worthless. We've got to follow. We are called. We are invited to uh, obey the, what, what God and, and Jesus has talked to us about. Verse 6. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. When we are obedient, we are called priests, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's pretty powerful. I think oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, I'm just not, you know, that strong in God. My, my faith isn't just that strong. But what you need to know is that if you are in Christ, you are a priest. You, we are part of a holy nation. And the same language shows up in the New Testament. Uh, Peter says this, uh, the, the, the apostle Peter, you are a chosen people. A, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. When we are living into God's uh, commandments, his teachings, his instructions, his, his mitzvah, then... When we are obedient, then we can experience the blessing of being priests, this, this royal and holy community. And so often I see in the life of the church, we act like we're defeated people. We don't live like priests. We don't live like we are a holy community. We're just like, well, I'm not really sure if I can do it. I'm not really sure if God has saved me. I'm not really sure if God has rescued me. And so we got to just trust again and remind one another, hey, we're not just Joe Christian on the street. We are priests. We are a holy community. This is who God has made us to be. Now, perhaps the question I get asked uh, most often as it relates to the Ten Commandments, do we 
as New Testament Christians still need to follow the Old Testament law? You know anybody who's ever asked that question? Have you ever asked that question? Do we, as New Testament Christians, need to follow the Old Testament law? You want an answer for that? That's a bad question. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute. You've said that there are no bad questions when it comes to the Bible. That is actually a bad question. It would be like saying, do we need to go to Texas Roadhouse for lunch today? I mean, that's a bad question, right? It's, it's just obvious what the answer is. Or how about this one? Do we need to go on that all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii? Do we have to do that? that? That's a bad question, right? Or how about this one? Um, I've got this really good boss. Do, do I really have to like my boss? Or how about you, those of you who are uh, grandparents? Do I have to like my grandkids? I mean, nobody asks that question, right? Those are bad questions questions. I think this is the same thing. Do we as New, Christ, New Testament Jesus followers need to follow the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament law? It's just a bad question. I think a better question would be something like this. Does following God's Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, still produce Flourishing relation, a flourishing relationship with God and healthy friendships, relationships with people around us? I think that's a better question. I mean, when, when we look at, the, at the, the Ten Commandments and the law, the Torah, these 613 things, are, do they still work? Are these still a good idea when we lean into and are obedient to the commandments? Do they still help us to have a strong and good relationship with God? And do they help us to live in harmony and flourishing relationships with one another? Yes. Yes, they do. So why would we not want to follow the Ten Commandments? These things still work. This is still God's plan for our lives. And just because Jesus, the new covenant relationship, has come doesn't mean that these things, we just throw these things out, that the Old Testament or, or the Ten Commandments are bad. They still work. They're still good. They help us in our relationships with one another and with God. So, of course, we would want to live into the Ten Commandments and study them and learn about them and grow for them because these, again, these were meant to, because God loves us. He wants the very best for us. But there's just one caveat that I want to say in addition to the yes. Yes, but we need to be careful with how we use the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments in our lives because people have a tendency to skew things and, and to uh, write them in their own way that works for them. And this is what we saw the Pharisees doing over and over and over, right? 
What God had given to the Israelites for good out of a, 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 a loving relationship, the Pharisees said, ah, oh, we're going to change them into something that serves us and works for us. This is why Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. This is why he taught in Matthew 5 through 7 over and over and over. You have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, if you even look at someone with an evil intention in your mind, you have committed murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, even if you look at a woman with lustful thoughts, you have committed adultery. See how this works? Yes, the commandments are still good. They still work. They're still meant to give us life and healthy relationships. But we need to look at them through the lens of the New Testament and most certainly through Jesus' teachings. And so we hold the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses and Jesus in this, uh, this tension, in this way of just kind of going back and forth. Well, what did Jesus say about it, and how can we live this way? In fact, at one time, a, a religious leader came up to Jesus and said, hey, what's the most important commandment? What is it, Jesus, of the 613? What, you know, what do we put at the number one? And Jesus said this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, hey, guys, these commandments are all about love. How we love our relationship with God and how we are love and relationship with one another. The Ten Commandments of Moses and all the commandments of Moses, the law, it was given to us out of this incredible love. And when we lean into these commandments, when we're obedient to these commandments, God still heals people. He still mends broken relationships. He still gives us joy. He can give us peace through leaning into these things. And my prayer is that we as a congregation would embrace God's law, not as something to punish us or ruin our fun, but just because he loves us so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us these instructions, your Torah. This ways, God, that we can know you better, the ways in which we can love you better, the ways, God, in which we can know one another better and be in healthy and flourishing relationships with one another. So, Lord, we thank you from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation. God, that the entire Bible, from beginning to end, you have given to us that we can know you, we can walk with you, deeper and deeper. And Lord, we can love you as we love those around us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.